Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life, life, life-saving. Well, today I'm really excited to have a special guest on the show. Her name is Annalisa Samara. She's the CEO of Rayos. Uh, welcome to the show, Annalisa. Oh, happy to be here, John. I'm delighted to speak to Annalisa. She's really a rock star in the Chicago life sciences ecosystem. So we'll get a chance to learn a little bit about her background, her story. And again, the purpose of Lab Rats to Unicorns is really to focus around the people behind the business of med tech and, and life sciences and really try to get at the underpinnings of how you know an idea can emerge from an academic laboratory, make it the long journey into the marketplace to ultimately help patients. So the goal of this show is to demystify that process um, by bringing the people to life. With that in mind, Annalisa, maybe you could just share a little bit about your journey, kind of where you got started and what uh, led you to where you are today. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've been involved in the life science startup community for about 17 years now, wearing many hats, uh, including venture capital, technology transfer, and playing senior management roles uh, in a number of companies. Uh, my first exposure to startups really was out of grad school, where uh, I, along with a couple of other colleagues, uh, formed a company uh, based on technology that came out of the University of Illinois Chicago. So as students, we did the whole business plan circuit thing, you know, the company is, is, is now very successful, has products all over the world, OrthoXL Technologies, and it was that kind of taste of entrepreneurship that said, you know what, I want more. But, you know, I wanted, I wanted to know at that point what it was like on the other side of the startup journeys and more of the investor side. So that's when I went into to venture capital. And then from, from there, just played, uh, you know, many senior roles in a number of startups, primarily in the medical device space. Um, and then my journey to Rayo specifically was uh, that I, I had been consulting to uh, a couple companies that had spun out of Northwestern out of the, the John Rogers lab, Professor John Rogers over there. And uh, he put together a grant application that focused on the Rayos technology. And, you know, I was content with this supportive role that I was playing. And as I was reading the application, I was just blown away by the indication, because I had never come across any technology that had focused on hydrocephalus, so that immediately drew me in. Um, the fact that the technology was non-invasive, uh, you know, also drew me in because I was so used to working on high-risk invasive devices. So then I said, hey, Dr. Rogers, who's leading this company? And he said, well, no one uh, right now. Uh, are you interested? And I said, absolutely. So that's when I dropped everything that I was doing. And then I, and I, you know, at that point in my life, I said, you know what, I'm just going to take that entrepreneurial leap. You know, I, I was very comfortable with the supporter role that I was doing, helping a bunch, a bunch of companies in, in many different uh, facets. And I said, you know what, I want to do this because I don't know if this is going to happen again in my life. So you kind of went all in. I went all in. You know, it was scary. Uh, my husband wasn't sure what I was doing. I wasn't really either. But you know what? I said, you know, I'm just going to do this. And, and if it works out great, and if it, if, it, if it doesn't work out, at least I tried. But so far, you know, it's working out. And I think it's uh, just really one of the greatest decisions I've ever, ever made. That's fantastic. And we'll get to Rayos around a little bit more detail with the technology, because I'm really excited to hear you talk more about yeah. where you're at in development, what ultimately the first patient population this can help, and then your bigger vision for the company. But first, in, before we get too deeply into Rayos, can you describe on your journey a little bit more about what formed you? You know, what were some of the things along your path that set the stage to put you in position to lead Rayos today? Yeah, yeah. I've always had a passion for science. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in undergrad, you know, I, I, my major was in, was in biology and anthropology. And, and, I was, and I had this, like, you know, vision of, of playing some sort of role in the sciences, but I didn't know what it was kind of like a wanderer, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe I think that's like a lot of undergrads. Um, and then uh, after uh, 
undergrad, I, I worked in La Jolla at a biotech company, a startup over there, and I thought that was interesting, you know, um, but then I kind of had my limitations in terms of kind of my skill sets. So then, you know, I came back to Chicago, you know, went to graduate school over at Rush, uh, where I got uh, my master's in cell biology and anthropology, cell biology and anatomy, rather. But at that point, I was like, you know what? I being in a lab isn't me, but I love science. How, I'm so conflicted. How does this work? Yeah. Um, so then, you know, I said, well, I'm interested in what another side of science is, and that is kind of like the business side of science. So then, you know, I, I enrolled in a dual degree program over at UIC Nextdoor, which was super convenient because it's right there in uh, the MBA and MPH program. And, you know, that's kind of where I had my first exposure to that intersection of science and business because I, I took this technology commercialization class and was exposed to, you know, different technologies. And, you know, my classmates and I formed this company, OrthoXL, which is, you know, uh, is successful now. And I think that experience is what really, you know, drew me in. Yeah, into, inspired you. Yeah, inspired me. And, but I, and I wanted to, you know, know more about what it was like to work in startups and kind of get perspectives from different lenses from, you know, the on the investor side, mm-hmm on the manager side, that sort of thing. So you like being in between. Yeah. At yeah. That, kind of at that nexus. Exactly. That's exactly where I like to be. And I think if you think about some of the features of your role as a CEO, it seems that that was important training and experience that you developed. I would imagine interacting with your colleagues within the cohort that formed that company, which by the way, that class, how do you think that impacted your capability as you emerged from that class. Obviously, the the company really was a very successful venture, even to this day. Do you think the class had an impact on developing your own skills in moving down this pathway? There's there's often this question, you know, can you teach entrepreneurship? Can you teach the components of success of translating academic innovation into great companies that ultimately get to the marketplace? I'm just curious, did you find that class to be relevant on your uh, pathway to where you are now? Absolutely. I think if I hadn't taken that class, we wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. <laughs> uh, I'd probably be working at uh, you know, a biotech company in, in, uh, on the West Coast, which isn't a bad thing, but uh, I wouldn't have, have gone through this journey. I think it was more of the experience through the class um, that I really benefited from because we entered business plan competitions across the country, got to pitch to investors, that that sort of thing. So you know, had that class not been available, I probably wouldn't have, you know, been down this road. So it sounds like a combination of the subject matter that you were learning about, but then practicing it and being with like-minded people that were motivated by similar things that that you were motivated by, and then the ability to just kind of move it forward. And yeah, maybe that was instructive as you think about raising money yeah. now for Rayos yep. and and along the way with the other companies that you've you've helped support but i would imagine that you know the business plan competition was also that pathway if you will multiple competitions over time were a good training ground for ultimately the the real world in in terms of bringing in you know real capital to build a company absolutely you know i kind of felt like i was thrown in the lion's pit because i had to manage you know, my, my course load at work, which is already, I mean, at school rather, which is already fully loaded. And I was also involved in extracurricular activities on campus and clubs, that sort of thing. And, and while, you know, trying to launch a business. So, you know, I think that was really early training uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, the, the wild lion's pit that is startups. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, and and I think it, it, it really is. I mean, if you can even share a little bit of uh, color on what we mean by by the lion's pit, you know, it, it's a daunting experience to go in front of a set of investors and convince them to believe you and, and back you. It'd be great to hear any, you know, uh, war stories you've had along the way yeah, sure. um, or great success stories for that matter that yeah. have helped you Maintain the confidence in the face of a lot of challenge, a lot of headwinds, a lot of no's along the way, as I can imagine. Oh, yeah, definitely a lot of no's along the way. But that's that, that's part of the business. That's part of the game. And, you know, I think, you know, if to, to, to go through this journey to be successful, you just have to have really thick skin. There's a, a lot of people who, you know, won't want to ride along with you in the journey, like the investors who say no or no, 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 not, not, not right now, uh, maybe later. Uh, you know, I, I got a lot of those. You know, I will say that raising our seed round at Rayos through the pandemic, during the pandemic, 
was probably the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. You know, I think- Was um, that because of the remote nature of not being face-to-face in meetings that, you know, for, for the listeners, as you're raising money, you're typically- Historically, you're in meeting rooms, you're yeah. visiting people, you're on a roadshow yeah. often where you're yeah. going meeting after meeting and you're meeting with people in person, telling the story, convincing them to put money into the company. And so now in the pandemic, was the challenge that you're referring to primarily because you weren't able to be face-to-face or what was it about the pandemic? I mean, obviously, sure, <laughs> there's a lot sure. of downsides to what's sure, happened in the sure. pandemic, but but what was it that made it the most difficult experience for you? Yeah, I, I think not being in person to present to investors is definitely challenging. I'm a read-the-room type of person. I, I love being out there. I love going to networking events. I, I, I love you know, meeting people. I love pitching, that sort of thing. I just love it. I love crowds. Um, I love meeting new people. So that was really difficult for, for me during the pandemic to try to read the Zoom room, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Still trying to figure out where to look, um, you know, while, while doing the Zoom meeting. So yeah, I mean, that that's challenging. And I think going back to the whole lion's pit, it's just the earliest dollars are the hardest to raise because that's when the company is the riskiest, Right. You know, you're you're selling a, a lot of things that you want to be uh, rather than what you have. And as you progress in the, in your in your funding stages, when you're at the A round, B round, you have more to show off. But at the A, at the you know at the seed pre seed round, it's more like here's a little bit of what we can do, and this is where we want to be. And trying to sell that is so hard, it's especially. You know, uh, I think, uh, you know, even regionally where we are, you know, since there aren't like a ton of investors. So, you know, it was kind of an uh, all those factors combined were attributed to the uphill battle. It's interesting you talk about reading the room. That's an important intangible strength and skill that a med tech or biotech CEO needs to have. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Because I really believe that as well, that as you talk with people and describe the challenge of raising money and what goes with it, there's a bit of a a thrill in the reading of the room and the understanding of, you know, who's responding and how are they responding? You know, furled brows versus, you know, smiles and oftentimes misinterpretation of, feeling really good coming out of a meeting because everybody seemed very happy, but then learning quickly after that they were not interested. And conversely, I'd been in several meetings where you were getting beaten up by these investors (laughs) and again, almost like a chess game going on. Uh, And then you come out and you find that the ones that were pushing you as hard as they were ended up investing in the company. I don't know if you've had that experience, but just a little bit more color on the reading of the room. Yeah. You know, it has to do with, uh, you know, uh, reading body language, uh, facial expressions, especially if uh, someone looks confused as you're, you know, describing the technology, then you got to slow down the music. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just got to, you know, take a step back and kind of, you know, you know, describe it in a way that, you know, they could grasp where you can see their reaction uh, physically where they're, you know, leaning in. If, if, they're, if their body is like positioned to you, you know that, you know, they're engaged. It's kind of hard to get that through Zoom. You can get that a little bit, but um, I think uh, the in-person, you know, meetings, uh, you can pick that up a lot easier. Yeah. And I always found, too, just in, in a lot of these meetings, the dynamic would be often that in person, you would find situations where, you know, you would arrive perhaps on time and show up and then uh, 10 minutes into it, the partner would come in late yeah. and you'd have to start over again and right. and, and all those things. Um, I remember sitting in meetings where you'd try to understand what role does that person have? They haven't asked any question here, but they seem you know very perplexed. And what is their role? And trying to read the room in that regard, I always took as a as as quite a challenge, and yeah. and I think you can't get any of that on Zoom. So yeah. how like how did you do it? How did you get to the point where you were able to convince that first person or that first group to come in? Yeah, I think it's a you know gentle persistence, right? If it were you know these meetings were in person, um, you know I'd be able to have you know small chit chat on the front end before the meeting starts and at the back end, you know just kind of you know have you know one on one conversations with with who's ever there. But with Zoom, you kind of don't have that. When the meeting ends, it's and you know it ends and everyone's right. everyone's off. But you know what what I did is just a, a lot of follow up, you know afterwards. But you know not to the point where I was annoying. But just, you know, follow up, especially if I had news to share, 
you know. Sure, updates. Updates, exactly. And, you know, that's uh, that's also, you know, one tip that I picked up in one of the accelerator programs that we participated in. And, and Rios did participate in a couple of accelerator programs through the pandemic, which I think is, you know, also a great thing for, for companies to participate in. And, um, you know, it, it, like I said, it's just, it's just a... <laughs> Tough lion's bit. Yeah. Well, congratulations on your progress with regards to getting that done in the pandemic. One of the things that you've also been very resourceful with, as I think about your success, um, knowing you for many years now and having the pleasure to collaborate with you in prior opportunities, you're well known for your ability to be successful accessing non-dilutive capital through small business innovation research grants. I read in your bio that, you know, you've raised uh, almost $40 million in SBIR or, or similar types of grants. Can you talk about how you got that magic skill and what, what goes with making that happen? And for the listener, again, non-dilutive capital is, you know, money that you're able to get that isn't diluting your ownership as a, as a founder or as a executive within the company. So, you know, if you're bringing in a lot of equity money, the good news is that brings in a lot of cash, but you're trading away stock. So you're giving away your ownership position and therefore that's what's known as dilutive capital. So Annalisa is the master of bringing in non-dilutive capital, which is great because you're able as an entrepreneur then to hold on more ownership, not only in terms of downstream wealth creation opportunities, but even just control of the agenda early on when the company is still pretty fragile. So it's yeah. a really uh, important tool. Talk about your um, what has allowed you to be so successful with those. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I can start off with the the origins and I actually got involved. So, you know, I, I started working at SBIR since two, in 2008, uh, was it 2007, around that time. And at the time I had been working in early stage VC. And, you know, my firm you know, would invest in companies, but, you know, it would kind of be like a modest amount. And one of the partners said to me, because I worked in the life science practice and, you know, work with pharma and med devices, which you need a lot of money to reach value inflection milestones. So we'd put in, you know, $100,000, $150,000 into companies, but it wasn't enough, right? So then one of the partners said, hey, Annalisa, look into this whole SBIR thing. It's, it's a way to get grants from the government. And, you know, as my boss, I said, yeah, sure. But I had no idea what SBIRs were. So I had to do my own research. I attended, you know, these grant workshops. Uh, I attended one, I think, maybe two or three times. I still, I kind of got bits and pieces, but didn't really get it. But I think for me to, to I actually got it when I actually put one together. So I, I worked with, uh, you know, one of the inventors in, in one of our portfolio companies. We put together an application. Uh, I think it, maybe it took like two months or so. And, uh, you know, it was successful and got funded and it was great. And I think, you know, at that time, my boss was like, oh, you got that one. Let's let's get another one for, for this other company here. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I thought it was, I was, I thought it was done, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, and then I, then I just kept going. And then after I left the firm, I, I still continued to help the, the portfolio companies as an independent consultant on their grants because I was starting to get good at it. And then, you know, through that, uh, you know, those early days, I, I realized that, you know, these early non-delivered dollars are so it's so precious, so valuable, so wanted by a lot of these co-founders because they don't want to, you know, what you said earlier, they want to give up, you know, so much equity at, at the get-go. If they can exploit it, it's great. So, you know, I, I you know, I, I just started building my my client base. I never had to advertise or anything. Um, I think the um, the life science startup community here in Chicago is so close-knit. So, you know, they would just, uh, you know, tell their colleagues, hey, you, you might want to get a hold of Annalisa here to work on a grant, that sort of thing. And then it just started blowing up. And then, um, you know, uh, it, it takes time to put these, these grants together. And, um, you know, I get a lot of, out of it personally, you know, working with these uh, young companies because I love feeling their energy. You know, they get so excited about talking about what they're doing, what they want to do, that sort of thing. And, and that, that gives me uh, a lot of excitement and energy, too. And this is why, you know, I help out. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted a, a broader reach. So then I started mentoring um, through, you know, different channels like, the Pulse Exchange at University of Chicago, um, through, you know, Argonne's uh, Chain Reaction Innovations, through, through Invo, and through the Illinois University Incubator Network at University of Illinois. It's it's because I know how important these early dollars are to reach the milestone that investors want these companies to, you know, to reach. And it's also important for me because I've been in their shoes. I know how hard it is to raise money and, uh, you know, um, anything I can do 
do to help, you know, I do, especially in this community. Is there anything you notice um, that you could kind of flag as the reason why, you know, more of the applications that you're involved in um, get funded? What What's lacking in, in your opinion, in grants that uh, are applied for that, that don't get funded? Is, is there a certain um, element that you think is uh, underappreciated perhaps in applications that, that don't get funded that you think you spend more time on? Maybe just describe for the listener any tricks of the trade, I guess. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, there certainly there are a number of reasons why uh, applications, uh, you know, don't get funded. But I think, you know, one of the big reasons is, um, you know, and it doesn't know, actually, I'll list a couple in no particular order. I think it comes down to the team, um, you know, especially for those uh, companies that are applying for the big grants that, you know, phase one and phase two, the multi-million dollar grants, that sort of thing, where they have an unbalanced team, where it's too tech heavy, where they have no employees or one or two employees, that, that doesn't really fly. Um you know, reviewers like to see balanced teams, um, both on the technical as well as, as the business side, um, because ultimately they want to see that not only that the project is, could be successful, but the company as well. I think another uh, reason for rejection um, has to do with the um, research strategy. Um, if, uh, you know, oftentimes the uh, companies, uh, the primary investigator is unable to really articulate, um, you know, kind of like the, um, you know, the experiments that are that are needed to reach, uh, you know, the research objectives, oftentimes a lot of the science and the steps are in their head and doesn't really translate on paper well enough. And, you know, sometimes when I read these applications, I say, I, you know, I feel like you're missing this, you're missing this. Oh, and then they explain it to me verbally. I'm like, well, you know what, you need to put that on paper. So, um, you know, I think it's just, um, all, and also identifying like what the, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the criteria, a quantitative criteria uh, for success are, um, that is often uh, left out of applications too, because as a reviewer, I'm a reviewer on the NSF, we we kind of, um, we like to read that part of the application and, and, and try to identify what can go wrong. And if you, at the, at the applicant at the get-go can say, hey, you know, this is how we determine success. This is how we quantify success. That makes it a lot easier for the reviewers. Very interesting. And back to, um, you know, the start of the conversation, you talked about wanting to always be at the nexus of the yeah. innovator and kind of the, the the pathway to the market. And it seems that in the role that you're just describing, where you've been in many ways an agent or a partner or a mentor, you've had an opportunity to really interact with a lot of uh, different scientists. Yeah. And if you think about uh, today interacting, maybe you could talk. You also raised the point around team and it's important. Fast forward to today, um, and if you could describe your uh, interactions with Dr. Rogers, kind of how you got to know him, how that inspired you to take on the role of CEO, and then how you've been able to build the team. You have an outstanding uh, team at Rayos um, as you scale and get more resources through the uh, access to capital that uh, you've been able to accomplish so far. Um, so just talk a little bit about how you've used all those interactions through those prior roles um, to be doing what you're doing and enjoying working with, um, you know, Dr. Rogers, you know, uh, uh, you know, a very prolific inventor. Yeah, yeah. You know, I decided really early on in my career that it was important to build my network. Um, you often hear the saying, your, your network is your net worth. Mm-hmm. And I actually believe that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I attended a lot of, you know, entrepreneurial, you know, networking events, mixers, that sort of thing early on. And I still do, um, you know, attend those things. Um, and um, I think it's important to, you know, meet as many uh, people as you can in, in this community, especially in Chicago here. You know, like I said earlier, we're kind of close-knit, so it's kind of easy to, to do that. Um, with respect to, you know, Dr. Rogers, actually I've known him for quite some time. So when I was working in early-stage venture capital, the firm I was involved in, uh, invested in in one of his companies. Um, and even at that time, you know, he, he was known to be, you know, this really um, important, prolific, uh, you know, big deal uh, inventor. And he was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign at that time. And then, you know, um, 
he's kind of like a diamond in the rough. And I knew that even back then that what he was doing, uh, the work that he was doing was going to make such a huge impact um, in the sciences. So, you know, I kind of, you know, watched him, uh, you know, we interacted way back then and then kind of watched his journey, his transition to, to Northwestern, you know, through the years. And then, um, you know, I was contacted by, um, you know, someone he was working with um, uh, and, and they knew about, you know, my, um, you know, my grant expertise um, and they wanted me to consult to a couple of companies. Um, so, and then I was, you know, I was actually really excited. I was like, Dr. Rogers wants to work with me. <laughs> You know, I'm just, you know, I'm just this grant person. Okay, great. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. You know, sign me up. I'm in. So, um, you know, I, I consulted to a couple of his companies helping on, you know, the post-award management side, you know, that sort of thing. And and that kind of, you know, dovetail into how, uh, you know, we, you know, got started with Rios when I saw that grant and, you know, Rios is formed and, and, and all that. So, you know, uh, he, uh, um, the, the, if you've ever been to the lab, I don't know if you have, John, but you, you should, if you, if you haven't, it's, it's just like, it's magical. Yeah. You know, the, you know, you have to swipe in and it's just like, you know, a lot of great science happens there. So, you know, uh, when I was consulting uh, to his, his companies, I said, you know what, I, I just need to be involved in all of this as long as I can. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah it's like the Disneyland for, exactly. uh, for, for labs. Yeah, yeah no, there you go. Well, um, have you been able with Rayos to utilize some of the skills? I mean, we talked a lot about raising capital. You talked about the seed round. Um, what about grant activity there? Have you been able to use that tool um, for Rayos itself, accessing uh, SBIR grants? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are a couple other members of my team, too, that have been successful in grants. You know, they've, uh, you know, one or two people have, have, have been PIs on, you know, other SBIR grants. And, you know, we used our skills uh, in, in that avenue to apply for grants. And I will say we always apply for grants. And, you know, I have this mindset that, you know, we should always be raising money, um, even though, you know, we're, we're closing in our seed round in, in a couple of weeks here. Um, it's, it's important to keep the money flowing in the company, mm-hmm. um, which is why we always apply for grants. Like when you raise diluted funding, you'll get a lot of no's. You'll also get a lot of no's on the non-diluted sure, side. Sure, sure. You know, um, so, you know, we, we've applied um, and have gotten, you know, National Science Foundation grants. Uh, you know, we, we actually got funded early this year, a $1 million, over $1 million grant from the National Science Foundation. And then we also uh, recently received uh, a fast track. So that's a phase one and phase two, $4 million grant from, from the NIH. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, thank you so much. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I think I cried a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be crying. I'm crying just yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. amazing. The, and it's like, a, you know, I think we, 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 we talked a couple of times here about the journey. To get that grant, that $4 million grant, that wasn't like an overnight success. Right, right. We had a couple of strikes at that, sure, you know, sure. and it's just like raising money with investors. There's like, you know, it's very you get a lot of no's. It's yeah. very You're improving iterative. the story each time you hear the critical feedback. Yeah, and I, I will say that might be even a little bit more painful when you get the rejection because you spend so much time putting to the app, together the application and then it takes a long time to, you know, find out that yes or no and then, you know, so you put, to, you spend a couple of months putting together the application, you wait, you know, maybe like five, maybe up to seven months to get a note. That's, that'll take a toll on you. And, um, you know, luckily, uh, you know, my team and myself have, have gone through the process a lot and where we have thick skin, where we say, okay, we got to know, okay, what do we, how can we make it better the next time around? So I think we leveraged our experiences in SBIRs and, you know, just, uh, you know, apply for them. And uh, we were so fortunate to kind of, um, you know, be successful uh, with these two grants. Don't you think in many ways that iterative process also is um, a tool that you utilize as you think about the business itself? Absolutely. You're thinking about um, persuading people to invest in the vision, but then as you're doing that, you're really yourself taking that vision and you're executing. Yep. Um, When you think about Rayos, Describe a little bit more what the product is and then the importance of markets. And and so just like you're getting feedback on the critical side from investors to set the stage to build the company, to build the product, don't you also have to be in the market understanding your end customer, how they will use your product? And if you could just talk a little bit about your experience there so far as you've you know formed the company, built the team, 
How are you using the iterative process with prospective customers to understand your product as well? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, through the SBIR experience, um, you know, uh, know, one of the important things we learned along the way, particularly through the I-Corps program that we participated in through the NSF, is the importance of customer discovery. Um, And and what that means is, is, is really getting out of the building and talking to the different stakeholders and understanding what their pain points are. And we made that a point at Rayos, um, you know, early on, uh, and even during the pandemic, to talk to as many patients, as many neurosurgeons um, as we can, just to understand, um, you know, what the gaps are in, uh, in, in, in clinical care so that we can, you know, design a product. I've been a part of startups and I've seen startups where, you know, they spend years and millions of dollars, uh, you know, uh, developing a product that doesn't fly off the shelves. Because why? They were not really talking to they the end ta- user, they, right? They didn't get out of the vacuum. building. Exactly. Working in a vacuum. Working in a vacuum. And wouldn't you say, I noticed that in particular with academia, yep. um, with if you're just working in isolation, um, you know, you could be a very bright scientist with right. a great idea and an awesome technology. Yep. But if you're not aware of where it's going and what problem it may solve, um, you you just won't get the traction. You won't find, you know, you won't get the SBIR dollars. Right. You won't get the investors. And ultimately, because you won't find a customer, so yeah. it's it's um, seems like obvious, but it's it's really a, an oftentimes missing piece Absolutely. of what people talk about when they describe kind of academic translation and the so-called you know valley of death right. when you can't get money to move the idea forward yeah. that really early stage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, customer discovery is actually something that, as a reviewer at, at the NSF, we look for. We look for in the application, like. Did they talk to their customers? You know, what were their pain points? Like, you know, why why would they and like why do you think uh, you know your technology fills in a gap in, in those pain points? So, you know, that's what we did, uh, and we continue to do, and it's 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 a process that's ongoing. Uh, we still do customer discovery now, even though we're, we're still so far along as we think about. Um, you know, the final stages are device and also next generation, uh, you know, devices as well. I think it's important to always, you know, keep the customer in mind and talk to the customers throughout throughout the whole process. So describe the market need for your first product yeah. and in its first um, uh, version and the pain points there and what problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, yeah, sure. So maybe I can just start off with saying that, you know, Rayos is developing a suite of non-invasive wearable skin sensors that can assess flow, bodily flow, subdermally throughout the body. So when, you know, you think of flow, think of things like uh, blood flow, lymph flow, you know, uh, all sorts of flow in the body. You know, our body is essentially made up of a series of pipes where different, you know, fluids flow. And we can assess that flow, quantify that flow um, non-invasively. So the, it's like I said, it's a, like the platform technology came out of Northwestern. Um, and the, our initial target market is uh, within the neurosurgical suite, particularly in an indication called hydrocephalus. So some listeners, you know, here might be saying, hydro, what? What's that? So hydrocephalus is a chronic neurological condition characterized by excess cerebrospinal fluid or CSF on the brain. Now, everyone listening right now has CSF, but for about a million Americans, they just make too much of it. And that has to go somewhere. So the gold standard treatment right now is to drain that excess fluid by placing something called a shunt, which is essentially tubing that drains the brain of that excess fluid. Now, shunt technologies have uh, been around for decades. Um, But uh, the problem with this gold standard is that the shunts fail. And they fail due to things like, uh, you know, being dislodged, uh, things getting clogged up in there, that sort of thing. And when that happens, that can be, uh, you know, a life or death situation uh, for for these patients, many of which are children. Um, so, you know, there's no technology available right now that can easily non-invasively assess that flow in the shunt that's supposed to be doing its job right now to assess, um, you know, whether or not a patient has a shunt failure. Um, imaging is performed by by way of, you know, x-rays, MRI, that sort of thing, but it doesn't really give information about flow. It's kind of like taking a picture of your brain structures um, to, you know, to see if, you know, um, you know, they're swollen, that sort of thing. So, 
what we do over at Rayos is that, you know, we're developing this kind of bandage-looking sensor that's small, fits in the size of, you know, your palm, and it goes over the shunt on the skin, so completely non-invasive, completely wireless, uh, you know, thanks to the magic of Dr. Rogers and friends. It's amazing. It's Yeah, it really is. Um, where, you know, that, that sensor is placed on the skin overlying the shunt, and, um, you know, in a matter of minutes, we can tell if there's flow or no flow, as well as some quantitative information about the flow. That's amazing. So um, in, in breaking it down, um, I would imagine you're able to then um, say improve quality of life yeah. for those patients. Um, second, uh, likely, you know, reduce, you know, overall cost yeah. um, due to the need to go in sometimes invasively or even through the yeah. imaging yeah. Um, to determine whether or not you know, that shunt is, is working or not. And, and even just, um, improving the lives of the patients would be profound. Oh gosh. Yeah. You know, I will say like my, and I'll never forget this, my first week on the job, um, you know, leading the company, which was also very scary because, you know, as my, I'm a, you know, first time CEO here, but well-prepared through my experiences. I, uh, we, uh, Reyes was in the middle of a, a clinical trial. And uh, I was fortunate enough to, you know, meet uh, a patient uh, who's a, you know, high school student and her mom. And, uh, you know, I had some, you know, uh, time to chat with the mom just so I could do kind of my sort of informal customer discovery, trying to understand what her pain points are in caring for a patient with a chronic condition. And, you know, she's telling her story about her daughter, about how difficult her life is, how many days of school she had missed because she had headaches. Um, uh, you know, that they thought was a shunt failure, that sort of thing, um, and how many important events they had to miss and how she, you know, she couldn't she couldn't work because she had to be, you know, a full-time mom taking care of the patient. Like, that really drew me in, um, and, you know, especially since I'm a mom uh, myself. And I, you know, honestly, I had a hard time not crying at that moment because I felt for her. And I think that's an important thing for me. Like, it was a combination of talking to her and feeling the importance of the impact that our device can have on patients and caregivers uh, like, uh, you know, like her and, you know, her daughter, that that I think I knew at that moment that, um, you know, I actually made a right decision in, in joining this company. So, um, you know, I think the fact that this, this product can, has the potential to really impact the lives of so many patients, especially the pediatric population, um, gives me personally uh, meaning um, uh, in doing what I'm doing here. Excellent. Today's episode was brought to you by World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting-edge lab and office space. Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. And where are you in the pathway to approval? So when might that patient and yeah. uh, others uh, like that patient benefit from this product. I understand that there's uh, a lot of risk that still remains. The product needs to go in further clinical studies, but um, where are you in that process and under um, the, the best of conditions, when do you think it might be in the market and approved by the FDA? Yeah, so we're looking, uh, we're on track uh, to launch uh, next year. Uh, you know, uh, I would say, you know, probably between Q2 and Q3. Um, uh, we were fortunate enough to receive um, FDA breakthrough designation, uh, you know, for our class two device, which is, you know, which is great. It's a much sought after designation by a lot of medical device companies. Because and, and why is that again? What does it provide? Yeah, so it allows um, the company to interact with the FDA, Um you know, uh, more frequently uh, and uh, more quickly than they would uh, normally do. So we've actually had four or five interactions with the FDA um, within, uh, you know, the, the past several months. Ordinarily, you'd have to submit a, you know, pre-submission application, that sort of thing. It's a really long, drawn-out process. So in order for you to meet with the FDA, it can take maybe three or four months, that sort of thing. But with us, it's a matter of what, 
two weeks, maybe three weeks to just get on wow, that's a crazy. Zoom call. So it's great. Yeah. So there's a I lot. I mean, the ordinary path is like you right. just described. It's a, it's a painstakingly slow it process. You, yeah. know, you submit written questions yeah. and they have certain time to get right. back to you. They take every minute of that right. time frame. And oftentimes the responses are, at least you know, to the sponsor, to the company, right. are frustrating because you always are looking yeah. for more. And so to have that type of intervention um, in that real t- almost real right. time absolutely. would be extraordinarily valuable. Absolutely, absolutely. It's almost kind of like a like a Disneyland fast pass. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and I would imagine that this is provided to um, companies and sponsors that are working in areas of high unmet need where um, they're they understand the urgency um, right. in, in meeting that need. Right, 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 right. And which is why these companies are, you know, have products that are designated breakthrough because the FDA realizes the significant impact that the technologies can bring. So yeah, so we have that breakthrough designation, you know, looking to launch next year. Uh, you know, we, we've begun our our pivotal uh, clinical study. We're, we're de novo 510K. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, fingers crossed, knocking with all that, we can, we can launch uh, next year. Back to the team. So how is the team helping you be ready for that? Yeah. Uh, I would imagine there's, uh, you know, the team has continued to build and think about, the commercialization aspects that go with anticipated FDA approval. Yeah. How is the team developing and um, where do you see that unfolding as you move forward as well? Do you need to hire a lot more people for commercialization? Just describe for the listener what what's on the horizon for bringing the product to the patient, assuming that it gets FDA approval. Yeah, I'll start off by saying that uh, the Reyes team uh, – these are uh, these folks are the, the greatest. It's the greatest team I've ever worked with, um, and um, I'm so proud of them. And sometimes I feel like a broken record mom, where I'm like, I'm so proud of you, <laughs> um, but it's true. Um, so, you know, when I uh, when I joined Reyes, it was really important for me to bring in folks that had their um, you know battle scars, deep experience in in startups, because as a startup, you're very you know crunch for time and cash. So I didn't have time. Um, you know, to, to, to bring in, you know, uh, you know, green folks and, and train them. And, you know, there just isn't time and money for that. So, you know, I was fortunate to like uh, have been involved in the startup community for so long where I phoned friends. I said, Hey, how's it going over there? And they tell me, uh, I've got something going over here. You might want to join me, that sort of thing. So, you know, I brought a new, f- a few folks on, on, on the regulatory clinical side, um, engineering side that I'd worked with, uh, you know, in, in prior startups and finance side uh, in prior startups that I I already had, you know, um, you know, worked extensively with, trusted, and I think that's a really important element when you're building uh, a team so early on that that you um, that you trust the people you work with because um, you're going to be working so closely together. So I like to call them kind of my my small team of it's it's between a special forces and Avengers. I'm deciding between the two, <laughs> but um, you know, so we they they are experts in their respective domains of um, you know uh, engineering, uh, you know, clinical operations, reimbursement, regulatory, that sort of thing. But so we're, we're right now we have a headcount of about ten people, but we are looking to grow. Um, you know, to to do all that we want to do, and we do have big dreams. Um, you know, especially as we build out our platform, um, you know, we're looking to grow because, you know, I, I need more Avengers uh, to join us in, in, <laughs> in different respects on the engineering side and, and even on the commercial side, too. I think that's also often an overlooked area in the early stage. I think it's important to really outline, detail your your marketing and, and your sales, your launch strategy, because having been involved in a number of startups, um, a lot of those companies are so heavy on the engineering and tech side and say, you know what, Our, the, the goal in, at, at that, in their minds at that time is usually just regulatory approval. And then like, then they'll have the batters and balloons at that point. But I'm like, you know, at the same time you're doing all yeah. that, you should really be thinking about launch because it's not like you get the regulatory approval right. and then customers are going to be knocking at your door. Exactly. That doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, you have to plan for for that the day after that the, day the day after, after the, the batteries have balloon. Exactly, <laughs> it's a brand new day. It's like Groundhog Day. You exactly. got to start all over again, and you got to look ahead. I often kind of use the image of the mountain. You know, you're you're climbing up. You got to base camp one. You right. have a route. You get to base camp two. You need a certain team, certain yep. sets of equipment. They yep. change as you get up the mountain. Yep. But as you you know, as you look 
up, you think the summit is just, you know, uh, uh, up ahead and you realize that there are several base camps yet to go to get, to get to the peak. And so just, that's an image that always kind of, I I've been guided by because, um, it, you often are only focused on that next base camp. Right. That's a great visual there. I mean, it's true. So, you know, that, you know, it's important for me, it's important for us at race to have that balance um, that, you know, so, you know, once we have that regulatory approval that we're ready to roll. Well, you know, the funny thing too, everybody always talks about raising money. You know, yeah. it's the kind of common thing that one thinks about when you are deciding to start a company, at least in the med tech and biotech field. So I've got to figure out how to raise capital. Yep. Well, uh, you've already talked about there are more forms of capital than just equity capital, yep. i.e. non-elutive grants like like um, uh, SBIRs and STTRs. But the other uh, intangible element is like raising a team, raising the oh, talent yeah. and and building the right expertise, the right culture, the right foundation so that you're in for the long haul, that you can really keep going all the way to um, the appropriate outcome, which is get the product, you know, to right. um, sets of patients. But I think that's often overlooked and underappreciated, but that's a form of currency and capital. And another attribute of a winning CEO is the ability to kind of inspire not just the capital to come into the company but the people to oh, yeah. to utilize that capital to execute against uh what yeah. what your what your big vision is absolutely uh you know the team is so important so you know not only have did i bring startup veterans to the team i also brought in industry veterans you know uh to the team which you know was not easy you know i i, I kind of had to pull away some folks that were in their cushy sure. really well paid absolutely uh, yeah <laughs> Nice benefits jobs. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, come on over where you won't make as much, mm-hmm. and I can't offer that. Uh, you know that benefit you have. So what pulls them over? Why do they do it? I think um, it's a uh, we fill a gap um, that uh, you know some of these industry players don't, where um, you know we have the potential to have um, a direct significant impact um, on uh, on uh, on patients' lives, and then also. Um, I provide them an opportunity to, um, you know, be leaders in their, you know, respective domains, but also learn um, about, get experience in other functional areas. So the folks from the industry that I have on the team, you know, they told me like, you know, I was working in this particular division and that's all I did. That's all I did. Very narrow. But, you know, I, you know, I had, you know, one of my engineers and I said, hey, do you, do you want to uh, get a little sense of what uh, it's like to get a reimbursement code? Like, come come to this meeting. Yeah. I, I provide them that opportunity because, you know, I think it's important um, for um, my team, whether they're, you know, seasoned or not so seasoned, to, to grow. Yeah, to build out their whole self. To build out their whole self, exactly. And I want them also to be informed. I don't want them to, you know, uh, feel so isolated in, in what they're doing. Along the way, speaking of kind of um, talent, combining it with the, the journey, were there any people on your pathway that inspired you, that you wanted to follow, that you that um, that looked like you, that wanted to, you know, that you had the same aspirations to to follow um, as you as you built your very successful career to this point in time? I think there are a couple of people in certain domains that I really uh, looked up to. Um, so I, maybe if I take a step back and say that, you know, I, I, I kind of know a, uh, a little bit about everything, you know, I, I tried out, you know, different fields and in, in regulatory quality, clinical, all that. And I, I kind of had people that I, that I looked up to, uh, you know, in, in those fields that I thought were just kind of like, you know, uh, you know, powerhouses in the, in, you know, their domains. And I, um, I made it a point to kind of understand their journey, get to know them uh, a bit more, and then kind of put that expertise in, in my back pocket. And then it's it's only now at race where I'm bringing all that, all those learnings out uh, in, in the back pocket. Um, but I think with respect to, um, you know, maybe CEOs, uh, you know, if I, if I mean, I'm, I just look at what you've yeah. accomplished. I mean, you're a, a woman founder and yeah. CEO, you know, really a leader in the, in the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And, you know, it's just inspiring. I'm certain to others that are walking 
behind you that are seeing the possibilities. And yeah. I'm just curious to see, you know, were, was there anybody up ahead? And it sounds like there were a number of people um, that influenced you um, yeah. on your pathway as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I would say so in, in respective fields, right? Whether it's, you know, regulatory or clinical, there, there are some folks. But if I'm being honest, I don't, I don't, I can't really think of anyone in like this CEO role, like female minority that I was able to look up to along the journey, right? Um, certainly there are a lot of, you know, male CEOs that, that I picked, you know, tips from along the way. But if I'm being honest, I, there is, I didn't really have anyone that looked like me. And I think that aspect is important for me now, right? I want to inspire the, the, the young girls in science who are interested in science and or entrepreneurship or the young minorities who are interested in science and, and entrepreneurship that you should have these big dreams. I also want to inspire um, those that that are that are born and, and raised here in Chicago and went through the Chicago public school system, which I did. Mm-hmm. I, I want them to I want them to realize that you know their dreams of being you know uh, CEO uh, of a company like Reos um, can come true. You've broken through so so many barriers to this that you've just kind of laid out even right there. I mean, and so it's, I think we're at a, hopefully at the beginning of a inflection point. I know you're on the board of Women in Bio. That certainly is a very influential organization. We partner at Portal with with them and want to continue to build the diversity of the portfolio companies that we have here. I mean, we want to see more of that. We want to encourage more of that and we want to increase accessibility. So again, so that people see the possibilities that indeed the pathway is open, but without having that person that, like you said, that looks like you, um, you're, you're really a trailblazer in, in that regard. Um, and and I, you know, you, you don't even have to reply to this, but I mean, you are in in moving down that pathway, you are opening up the possibilities for a whole new generation through your formal engagement with women in bio. I also noticed you still remain engaged as a judge for the science fairs oh, uh, for CPS. Um, so, you know, your, your actions are opening up the door for many others. Yeah. Um, it's, it's important for me for, for many reasons. You know, I'm, you know, I also have, you know, young children. I have, I have a little girl who also has big dreams mm-hmm. and I want her to, you know, uh, you know, keep, keep striving for them. And I want her to see, see mom, right. I want, it's important for me to set an example that, you know, if mom can do it, you can do it too. Um, and, um, you know, I, I hopefully, um, you know, we'll see more, you know, uh, women-led companies, minority-led companies, that sort of thing, because, um, you know, we have things to say, things Absolutely. to do. Absolutely. Yeah. What a wonderful story. Um, it's really been an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today, Annalisa. Um, wish you the best su- oh, success so in the next part of the journey with Rayos. Yeah. And uh, look forward to continuing to collaborate with you. Oh, thank you so much. It was great being here. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.